We take as our scripture reading this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The ninth commandment is put into a negative form. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. But we consider the very positive treatment of love in this chapter of God's word and see what God actually positively requires of us. Keep in mind as we read this that the word charity in our passage is one possible translation of the Greek word agape, which can also be translated love. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Thus far we read God's word. Let's consider what the Heidelberg Catechism has to teach us on the basis of the whole scripture. Lord's Day 43. What is required in the ninth commandment? That I bear false witness against no man, nor falsify any man's words, that I be no backbiter nor slanderer, that I do not judge nor join in condemning any man, rashly or unheard, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God. Likewise, that in judgment and all other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly and confess it. Also that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor.
Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we come to the ninth commandment of God's law. We have been examining the various duties of love that God's law places upon us, love for our neighbor, for God's sake. This morning we consider the command against bearing false witness, and we have to notice this morning that this commandment has to do with and teaches us love with regard to the truth, and particularly the truth about our neighbor, and then also it has to do with the truth about our neighbor as that regards his reputation, as that regards his name, and as that regards his honor and good character, as the Catechism teaches us. The Catechism teaches us on the basis of the scriptures that all sorts of lies and deceit are the proper work of the devil. And the reason the Catechism says that is because the scripture teaches us that the devil was the first to introduce lies into this world. The devil did that in the Garden of Eden when he took the form of a serpent And he slithered up to Eve in the midst of the garden, and he told the first lie that was ever heard in history when he said to her that if you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not surely die, even though God said you will surely die. By that, the devil became the father of lies. And throughout all of history, the devil has skillfully taught us human beings, how to lie. He has skillfully taught us and tempted us and led us in the paths of all sorts of lies and deceit. And he continues constantly to tempt us to lie, to lie against our neighbor, to lie against God, to lie against ourselves and to ourselves. But as we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, The Apostle teaches us to walk in the more excellent way of love in the church and as Christians. And he teaches us there in verse 6 something about love. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. And this morning we can say love does not rejoice in the iniquity of lying. But love rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in knowing the truth and speaking the truth about God and about our neighbor. So let's consider the ninth commandment this morning under the theme, the command against bearing false witness. First of all, that we are forbidden to tell lies. Secondly, we are required to speak the truth. Finally, we are warned of God's heavy wrath. In the ninth commandment, God says to each one of us this morning, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Why does God make this commandment to us? Well, the reason is that God is the truth. God himself is the truth. And he is the most fundamental truth that there is. There is no truth more fundamental than God himself. He is the one true God. He is the one true light 
that shines in the world. And God also knows the truth. He knows the truth about all things, the truth about all persons, the the truth about everything that has ever happened and everything that ever will happen. And he loves that truth. What is the truth? The truth is the reality about what happened, the reality about what was said, what was done, what was seen, what was heard. And all of that truth is God's truth because God has determined it in his counsel from all eternity. Everything that happens, happens according to his plan and his counsel, and therefore, God loves that truth. And he hates all lies. Because a lie is the darkness that attempts to smother the light. A lie is the darkness that attempts to bury the truth. Every lie is an attempt to destroy the truth. The truth is always first, and the lie comes after the truth in an attempt to destroy it. That's what a lie is. The devil is the father of those lies. So in the ninth commandment, God says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. You must not lie about your neighbor or against your neighbor. Bearing false witness is lying. And we know that lying is speaking falsehoods deliberately. The person who lies knows the truth. He knows the truth about what he did. He knows the truth about what he said. He knows the truth about what he saw, about what he heard, about what happened. He knows the truth, but he refuses to speak that truth. It's not that the liar makes a mistake about what he saw or what he heard. It's not that he has a slip of his memory, that he forgets exactly what happened, and he accidentally makes a mistake when he tells people what was said or what was done. But it's that he knows the truth, and he intentionally refuses to speak it. And he deliberately chooses to speak something that's not true, something that's false, that's lying. Now, the language of bearing false witness is the language of the court. I think we can all recognize that. Bearing false witness, narrowly speaking, is lying in the setting of the court. But we can expand that and understand that very broadly. It's lying in the court of the home. It can be lying in the court of the school, the principal's office. It can be lying in the court of the church, the consistory room, or in the classes, or the synod. It can be lying in the court of the workplace. Or it can be lying in a court of law before a judge. Bearing false witness implies that we're in some kind of court. We're standing before someone who is in authority over us, and we are being questioned. We are being interrogated. Someone is asking us, what did you see? What did you hear? What happened? Tell me about it. For example, I think every child has heard mom at some point say to them, so what happened? I heard a bunch of commotion downstairs. I heard a bunch of yelling and screaming and fighting. Tell me, what happened? I didn't see it. Tell me, what, what happened? What's going on down there? Sometimes young people come home, and they break their curfew. They're supposed to be home at 10 o'clock, and they come home at midnight or later. And now they face their father, and their father is saying to them, Where were you? You're supposed to be home by now. You're supposed to be home at 10 o'clock. You're late. 
And what's that I smell on your breath? It could be that a wife is asking her husband, where have you been? Who have you been messaging on Facebook? Who have you been talking to on the phone? Or it could be that the mother is saying to the children, what have you been watching on your television downstairs? Or what were you playing on your tablet? We're questioned, we're asked a question by someone in authority over us. Bearing false witness means we're standing there in that kind of a court before this person in authority, our parents, our employer, our elders, the judge, our employer, and they were asked those questions. And now what are we going to say? Bearing false witness means that we know the truth, but we refuse to speak it. And instead, we choose to speak a lie. Bearing false witness doesn't mean that we know the truth and we say nothing. Bearing false witness means that we know the truth and we speak a lie. We speak something that we know isn't true. Lying. Lying is always an intentional thing, deliberate thing, a knowing thing. Why do we lie? There are a multitude of reasons, of course. Sometimes people lie simply for the thrill of lying, for the thrill of trying to deceive somebody and to get away with it, or the thrill, the way it makes them feel to tell those lies so that it even becomes a habitual thing in their life that they're always lying and deceiving and manipulating. Sometimes, more often probably, people tell lies in the hope of escaping the punishment, the consequences of speaking the truth. They know that speaking the truth means they're going to get into trouble. They're going to have to face the music. They're going to have to be punished for what, they, what happened and what they did, and they don't want that, so they lie. Sometimes, too, lying is done in order to hurt somebody else. Lying is done as a way of taking revenge upon the neighbor. And that's the way the commandment is specifically written. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That's lying for the purpose of hurting the neighbor, convicting the neighbor of something he didn't do or something he didn't say. We think of the story in Genesis of the wife of Potiphar who tried to seduce Joseph to have a sexual relationship with her, and Joseph in his godliness refused to have that relationship with his master's wife. And then she turned around and bore false witness against him to Potiphar and said that Joseph was the one who tried to tempt her when she was the one who tried to tempt him. Sometimes people lie to take revenge. God hates lying. He hates it. He hates all forms of lying. The scriptures teach us that, for example, in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, the proverb there says that these six things doth the Lord hate. And then it lists six things. And out of those six things, we are told, one of them is a proud look. One of them is a lying tongue. One of them is a false witness that speaketh lies. The Lord hates these things. So the catechism goes on and mentions some other forms of lying that God also hates. Falsifying a man's words. Falsifying a man's words implies that we are talking to others about him. 
and we're talking to others about something he said. Now, this is a situation that happens all the time in our lives. We're often talking with people about other people who aren't there. Sometimes that happens in face-to-face conversations. It happens in social media chats. It happens in the home, in the church, in the school, in the workplace. We're talking with our wife or husband about other people. We're talking with our children or our friends about other people. We're telling stories. We're sharing news. We're talking about the church controversy. We're talking about the most recent scandal that has happened. We're talking about family news. We're talking about family plans. We're talking about family secrets. We're talking about things that happened at work. And in all of that conversation, we're talking about other people. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with talking amongst ourselves about other people or about what other people have said. But there is something wrong with falsifying a man's words. Falsifying a man's words means that we misrepresent what he said. We alter it. We twist it. We change it. And whether that happens in a careless manner because we simply are carelessly trying to tell people what he said, or if it happens in a very intentional and malicious manner, it doesn't matter. God hates it when we falsify a man's words. And that can be done in many different ways as well. That happens, for example, when we quote a man out of context. We take something that he said, we rip it out of the context in which he said it, we leave aside that context, and now we say, this is what he said. That's falsifying his words because we're not giving the whole picture of what he said. We're only quoting a part of what he said, not the whole thing. And that makes him look bad, perhaps. Falsifying a man's words happens when we put into a man's mouth words that he never said. We say, he said this, or he said that, but he never actually said those things. Or he never said them in that way. That's falsifying a man's words. That's an abomination to God. What about backbiting? The word is such a vivid word, backbiting, biting someone in the back. And the word itself indicates that you're talking about someone behind their back. And you're talking about them in a way that it bites their back and it hurts them. Backbiting means that we are speaking evil things, maybe not about something our neighbor said so that we falsify his words, but backbiting might be talking about something our neighbor did. Something that he did that wasn't a good thing. Something that was unsavory. Something that was nasty. Something that was wrong. And now we're going to tell this neighbor about all the terrible things that that neighbor did. And our motive for doing that is to hurt his reputation. To bring him down. And we might even be speaking truth. We might be saying true things, things he really said, things he really did, but they're sinful things, they're wrong things, they're nasty things. And now we're going to repeat that to others. We're going to tell others those nasty things. We're going to spread that gossip. And sometimes, while we're backbiting, we have the gall of thinking that there's nothing wrong with it. 
Because after all, we say to ourselves and to others, we're speaking the truth. Everything I'm saying is true. This really happened, and that's really how it happened. The Apostle Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 13 that if we speak with the tongues of men and angels, if we understand all mysteries, if we understand the deep mysteries of the faith, and if we come to Bible study and talk a good talk, and if in the consistory meeting we talk a good talk, and in the committee meetings we, we give a good witness, we make a good confession, but at the very same time, we are going here and there and everywhere, backbiting against our neighbor, spreading evil gossip, biting him in the back, bringing down his reputation, and hurting him. We are like a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. We are like a noisy gong, loud, banging, irritating sound in the ears of God. What about slandering? Well, slandering is very similar to backbiting and even more similar to falsifying a man's words because slandering is telling an outright lie behind his back. A blatant lie. Intentionally, with the cruel and malicious purpose of bringing him down. That's a slander. And the apostle says in the passage that if we have faith to remove mountains, and if we bestow all of our goods to feed the poor, but if at the very same time we are going here and there slandering our brother, slandering our sister, spreading lies about our neighbors on social media and in conversations and on the phone and on our blogs to bring them down, then we are we amount to nothing. And all of our good deeds profit nothing in the church. Nothing. It all amounts to nothing if we have not charity. Furthermore, the Catechism teaches us that God forbids that we judge or join in condemning any man rashly or unheard. The Catechism is there basing this teaching on Matthew 7, 1 through 5, and Luke 6, verse 37, where the Lord teaches us again and again and again, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with what measure you meet, it will be measured to you again. On the basis of that teaching of our Lord, the Catechism says, God forbids that we judge or join in condemning anyone rashly or unheard. Now, in the first place, we must always remember about judgment that God alone has the right to judge persons and to judge destinies and to judge salvation. God is judge, and God alone is judge when it comes to the destinies of men. We are not given the right ever to pronounce judgment upon persons and their eternal destinies, except if we are merely repeating the judgment that God himself has revealed to us in the scriptures. For example, 
God makes plain in the scriptures that he judges Judas Iscariot as the son of perdition. And therefore, we are not judging him, but we are only repeating God's judgment when we say that he's going to hell. But God does not give us the right to judge the destinies of persons that we know in our lives. God does give us the right to judge actions and words. That is, to judge them as right or wrong. And to make that judgment on the basis of his word. But now, when that judgment takes place, God forbids that we judge rashly. And that we judge unheard. Judging rashly means that we come to the conclusion that a person is wrong and evil in what he said or did. And we come to that conclusion very quickly. We come to that conclusion very hastily. It is obvious that we are in a rush to come to that conclusion. Judging unheard means that we come to such a conclusion without hearing the person speak for himself. We come to that conclusion on the basis of hearsay. We come to that conclusion on the basis of rumors and gossip. On the basis merely of those things, we come to a conclusion, he's wrong, he's wicked, he's evil, what he said, what he did. God forbids that. And what we must see here is that God also forbids that we judge on the basis of any other standard than his word and his law. The Pharisees judged people on the basis of their own man-made traditions. They judged a person to be right or wrong, good or evil, on the basis of their own standards. So, for example, if a man would eat a certain meat, they might say, that man is sinning. But in Romans 14... Verses 3 through 4, the apostle wrote, Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for the God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. There the apostle teaches us, don't judge in matters about which God doesn't lay down a law in Scripture. Don't judge your brother to be wicked and evil. That's legalism and judgmentalism, and it's a sin. All of these kinds of wicked judgment are forbidden by God. All of these kinds of judgment reveal that a person doesn't really care about the truth. That's why they're forbidden. All of these kinds of judgment reveal that a person is quite comfortable with lies. Because if we are quick and hasty to come to a conclusion, it means we don't really care about what is actually true. But we're more interested in casting the judgment. If we come to the judgment without hearing what the person says, again, we show we don't really care about what's true. We're more interested in forming our judgment. That's why God forbids it. It also reveals not only a breaking of the ninth commandment, but really the first commandment as well, because such an attitude reveals an idolatry of the self. It reveals a preoccupation and obsession with ourselves 
that we are right and that we are better than others. So in the ninth commandment, God forbids all telling of lies. But God has a positive requirement as well. And that positive requirement is that we speak the truth. We speak the truth out of love for God and love for our neighbor and in a loving manner. That's what the apostle is emphasizing to the Corinthians in this chapter where he is emphatic that the more excellent way in the church is the way of love. In chapter 11, 12, verse 31, he's telling them to covet earnestly the best gifts and yet... I show you a more excellent way. So he's saying, have a desire for spiritual gifts of all kinds in the church, but the more excellent way, the more important thing is the way of love. And that's chapter 13. The way of love, now, in regard to the way we speak about our neighbor in the ninth commandment, the way we speak about him, how we speak, what we speak, That must always be done out of love and in love. Now, he says, there abides faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. You might have all kinds of faith. You might have all kinds of hope. You might have all kinds of convictions. You might have all kinds of wisdom so that you can speak the deep mysteries of the faith. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. Nothing. It all amounts to nothing. If you don't speak out of love and in love about and to your neighbor. What does love look like? The apostle describes it in the text so that we know it when we see it. We know it when we hear it. Love suffers long. Love is patient. Love is kind, not cruel. Love does not envy the neighbor. Love does not vaunt itself up over the neighbor and boast itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave itself unseemly in an unfitting way. Love does not seek her own. Love isn't selfish. Love isn't preoccupied with myself. Love isn't serving myself, seeking myself. Love thinketh no evil. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth. Truth. Love rejoices in the truth about God above all. And love rejoices in the truth about myself. What's true about me? What's true about me? Like John writes in 1 John 1, If we say that we have no sin, we lie. And the truth is not in us. That's a truth about myself. What's true about me? What's true about God? What's true about me? What's true about my neighbor? What's true? That's what love rejoices in. The truth. Now the Catechism lays that out for us when it says that God requires us now to love our neighbor as ourselves so that in judgment... And in all other dealings, I love the truth. Speak it uprightly and confess it. Let's go back to that matter of judgment. When Jesus teaches us, judge not, 
lest ye be judged. He is not saying that we may and must never judge. He's not saying that there is a time for judgment. There is a place for judgment. But as we said earlier, not the judgment of the destinies of men, the judgment of the actions of men, not on the basis of human traditions, but on the basis of Scripture. Not rashly, but carefully. Not unheard, but hearing the the neighbor. So, with those qualifications, there is a place for judgment. And especially for those who are put in positions of authority. Do not parents have to judge the actions of their children as right or wrong? Do not elders have to judge the actions of the members of the church as right or wrong? Do not classes and synod have to judge all the matters that come rightfully before them as right or wrong? Yes, they must bring judgment. They must make a judgment. But the Catechism says that when we do that as parents, as elders, as teachers in the school, as employers in the workplace, as a classis, a consistory, a synod, whenever we make judgments, we must love the truth. Speak the truth uprightly and confess the truth. That's what God requires. Now we know that when the Bible says we rejoice in the truth and we must speak the truth, that first of all means the truth about God himself. God's truth, the truth about God, is above all. Our Belgian Confession says that. The truth is above all. The truth about God. That's true. The chief truth, the most precious truth, the most important truth is the truth about God. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10, we are told that in the last days when the man of sin stands upon the earth, the Antichrist, when the Antichrist shows himself to be God, when he boasts and vaunts himself and puffs himself up as the embodiment of the lie, in those days, people will perish because they received not the love of the truth. They received not the love of the truth. They didn't have the love of the truth in their hearts, the truth about God. They didn't love God or his son Jesus Christ or the truth of his gospel. We must never think that that won't happen to us because we're Christians. Because the Lord Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus, Revelation 2, verse 4, I have something against you, church at Ephesus, because you have left your first love. What is that first love? That's the love of God. That's the love of Jesus Christ. That's the love of the truth of the gospel, of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus who died and rose again and who is coming. The truth about the kingdom of God, 
all of the truth of God's word. It's the love of that truth. The love of it. It's a precious, precious thing. More precious than anything. Our first love. Do we love that truth in our hearts? And do we confess it? But that's not all. When the Catechism teaches that we are to love the truth, speak it uprightly and confess it, it also means the truth about ourselves and the truth about our neighbors. Do we love the truth in all of its parts, wherever it's found, and about whomever it has to do? Do we have in our hearts the resolve to speak the truth? Always the truth. Only the truth. Nothing but the truth. The full and complete and accurate truth about our neighbors. Do we have that love of the truth as consistory? Do we have that love of the truth as classes? Do we have that love of the truth as synod? Do we have it in our marriage? Do we have it in our family? Do we have it in our homes, in our schools? Not only the love of the truth about God, the love also of the truth about our neighbor. So that whenever we speak about him, we are resolved to speak the truth. Then furthermore, the Catechism teaches us that in this commandment, God requires that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. The means that I love my neighbor as myself and I would like others to defend and promote my honor and good character, and therefore I also seek to defend and promote the honor and the good character, the reputation and the name of my neighbor. That's what God requires. Now, some have said in our controversy recently that the Protestant Reformed churches do not love the truth anymore. We do not love the truth about God. We do not love the truth about the gospel. But all that we care about is to uphold the reputations of men. That accusation has been made. And about that, I want to say a couple things. First of all, yes, there is a temptation. There's always a temptation in the church to care more about the names and reputations of men than we care about the truth of God. That's a temptation. It's a very serious temptation that we would care about the reputations of men more than God would mean that when the truth of God is trashed and trodden underfoot, we don't care so much about that as we care to preserve the good name of men. That would be wrong to do that. 
That must never be. That's a temptation. But on the other hand, there's also this temptation that we care nothing about the reputations of men and the names of men and the honor and good character of men. But we are willing to tread that underfoot and trash the names and reputations of men and drag their names through the mud and call them vile things, all the while justifying our actions as love for this truth that is above all. That's also wrong. That's also sinful. We must do both. We must love the truth about God above all. And at the same time, we must love our neighbor and our brothers and sisters in the church and care about their names and their reputations and their good character so that we strive as much as we are able to defend and promote it. If we don't have that attitude, if we think that it's fine to trash the names of men, and we claim that this is even a glorious thing to do, then we are the fulfillment of what Jesus said to his apostles in John 16, verse 2. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. There are men who think that killing others, they are doing God's service. They are serving God by killing others. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4, verse 20, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. That's how you know that he's a liar. He says he loves God, but he shows hatred to his brother. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? As much as we are able, we must defend and promote the honor and good character of our neighbor. Now, it is true. We cannot defend the indefensible. I mean, it's very, very difficult to defend the honor and good character of men who manifest no good character. That's true. We all recognize that. That's hard to do. Very hard to do. Even then, we must strive, as much as we are able, to defend and promote the honor and good character of men, even when it's so hard. In fact, that's when love really, really shows itself. What the apostle describes in the text is how love behaves when it's tested, when it's difficult. Charity suffereth long, suffereth long with the brother. Charity is kind, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, not easily provoked. All that indicates that love is being tested. But love never faileth. It never faileth. So let us love each other unfailingly in the churches. 
by seeking as much as we are able to promote the honor and good character of our neighbor. Unless, the Catechism says, unless we would bring down upon ourselves the heavy wrath of God. Proverbs 12, verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. Proverbs 19, verse 5. A false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. Proverbs 21, verse 28, a false witness shall perish. Lying, backbiting, slandering, falsifying men's words, sinful judgment, bring down upon us the heavy wrath of God. God hates that behavior. The liar will not escape, we are told. The liar will not be left unpunished. The liar who is the child of his father, the devil, will perish, the proverb says. And as the book of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's a consuming fire toward all those who hate the truth. And so as one sinner, myself, speaking to sinners, you, I beseech us, Let us repent and let us flee from that wrath to come. Let us flee into the arms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For God, who is rich in mercy, has sent his only begotten Son into the world to take that heavy burden of his wrath that we deserve upon himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ went as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. As the Sanhedrin railed against him with their false accusations and their false witnesses, he spoke not a word of defense. As Pontius Pilate asked him whether he is the king, he spoke the truth. And for speaking the truth, and only the truth, the perfect and pure truth, indeed, as being himself the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, he was crucified. Nailed to the cross. And he opened not his mouth. Though he was innocent of all lying, of all slandering, they said, He told us not to pay our taxes. But Jesus actually said, pay your taxes. They said, he said he would build, he would destroy the temple and build it in three days. But they falsified his words because what he meant was the temple of his body and the resurrection of the dead. He spoke truth. He who was the truth, the bright, shining truth, came into the world and the darkness comprehended him not. And the darkness rejected him. We rejected him. He did not reject us. He gave himself, laid himself down on the cross and 
took upon his mighty shoulders that heavy burden of God's eternal wrath against us for all of our lying and judging and condemning and slandering. And he bore that heavy, mighty burden on the cross and shedding his blood, his precious, divine, human blood on the cross. He bore it all away. Bore it all away for all eternity. So that now, beloved believers in Jesus Christ, he comes to us and declares the gospel of forgiveness. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive all your sins. I see them no more because he has borne them all away. All that heavy wrath, he's borne it away. I forgive you. I forgive you. And I bestow upon you my Holy Spirit to tame your tongue tame your tongue to give you the power to speak the truth and not the lies. So the law of God comes to us as those sinners who have been forgiven freely and graciously. And the law says, come, come, come. Let us show our thankfulness to God for taking away that wrath at the cross. Come, brothers and sisters, let us speak the truth, only the truth, the full truth, the loving truth about God and our neighbor. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee for the Gospel, especially, as we have heard through the law how great are our sins and miseries, We thank thee for the gospel of the truth whom thou hast sent into the world to die for us. May the precious blood of Christ and his spirit so work in us that we are moved, that we are strengthened, that we are given a small beginning of that new obedience, that we begin to speak the truth and do so in love for thee and our neighbor. 